guys, welcome to the last episode of season one of the Guy Thing podcast. Today, I am so excited for my guest, uh, very special guest to me, um, and I think a really great finale to the end of season one. My guest is Dr. Short. He is a professor here at TCU, and uh, yeah, one of the people that I look up to the most, and he's going to share his story of how he came to Japan and a couple things that he has noticed about his decades of living here. So yeah, I hope you guys enjoy and um, I really hope to have him on again, like all my guests. Uh, so yeah, uh, Dr. Short, good morning. How are you doing today? Good morning. Doing pretty good, thanks. Um, yeah, it's a little bit of a dreary kind of morning, but uh, it's a nice October uh, I love this weather, so it's pretty good. How about you? Yeah. I'm doing the same. Yeah, uh, looking outside, it's a little bit rainy, and, but I I do like you enjoy kind of this dreary fall weather. Mm. Kind of has like a nostalgic feeling to me. Kind of growing up on the west coast, uh, it's kind of a familiar sense. Yeah, like I grew up in. Alabama, so it uh, was a little bit probably warmer, hotter, even at this season. Uh, people outside playing football, still sweating in October, November. But uh, but since then, I've definitely come to appreciate uh, the change of the seasons in Japan. Mm. Does it? How how cold does it get in Alabama? Um, it it um, not it's all relative, right? So. Uh, when you grow up in Alabama and all you know is Alabama, that uh, then winters can feel brutally cold. But mm. for someone from uh, from the north, uh, of the, you know, from Canada, they might laugh at that <laughs> and say that's basically summer. So uh, no, it if if we had you know ten millimeters of snow, then the schools might close down. That kind of place. Oh, so you do get snow? Uh, one, maybe sometimes. Maybe, maybe once or twice uh, a year. Maybe. So for my lucky. for my metric brain, what is like the coldest it could get in Celsius? Yeah, I don't, I don't. Um, I mean, in Celsius, so a few degrees below zero. Uh, I don't remember it going too far. Um, well, that's that's cold. Yeah, we actually when I was a kid, we uh, one winter we did have an, what we called an ice storm. Basically, it had rained and then uh, everything had frozen. So power lines were coming down, tree because trees were falling. <laughs> so it was, you know, several that that year it was several degrees below um, below zero. But uh, that that was a pretty rare occurrence. And do do you find uh, it difficult to? Um, I mean, you've lived in Japan for a long time now. Do you do you find it easy to convert to Celsius, or do you still struggle? I have a feeling, and, and so when you ask me below zero, once you go once you go into the negatives, mm -hmm. that feeling starts to change. So I can't really feel what it's like below uh, zero. I'm still thinking, okay, I know 32 degrees Fahrenheit and below, uh, but above anywhere between zero degrees and let's say what uh, you know 40 degrees Celsius, I'm I get the feeling. But if you go outside of that range, it doesn't make much sense to me. <laughs> so the yeah. negatives, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, since since coming, so we use the metric system in Canada, but we still use 
uh, some imperial measurements like pounds and stuff. Right, right. So whenever people talk in centimeters and pound and kilos here, yeah. I, I I can't feel it in my gut. Like I can't get a good uh, read on stuff. Does yeah, that give still it, happen to you? No, give it twenty years or so. I think now, <laughs> uh, you know, kilograms definitely kilometers. I I I would much rather calculate things and. In terms of kilometers than uh, than miles, so oh, interesting. Uh, but uh, so that makes probably as much or more sense to me now. Even but, uh, kilometers per hour, like speed. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I'm always calculating uh, in terms of my speed, how long it's going to take to get to a place, and uh, and so I, I'm always doing these little calculations while I'm driving, and it's so much <laughs> easier, so much easier yeah. in the metric system. So how 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 long have you lived in Japan for now? So yeah, that's uh, I think it's coming up on a total of about twenty years. So wow, yeah, I spent um, let's see, about a year in college, six years, seven. So it's uh, no, it's actually over twenty, uh, twenty one maybe, uh, and mm. if you add it all together, so not not yet half of my life, but I'm getting there. Mm hmm. So it's been 20 years you've lived in Japan. Now, a lot of the guests that I've had um, on my podcast so far, they've been um, kind of like college kids my age. And um, a, lo a lot of us have like had an interest in Japan uh, since we were kids uh, yeah. or kind of in uh, like teen years, we got uh, interested in Japan. So for you, Dr. Short, did you um, gain an interest or a fascination with Japan when you were young? Mm, no, I would not say a fascination with Japan uh, when I was young. That The only things that come to mind from my childhood uh, is Karate Kid. You know Karate Kid? Yeah, uh, yeah. So that was, uh, I, I liked Karate Kid, as most of my friends. I remember probably upper elementary school, early junior high school um, at a local Baptist church. I was part of this youth group. Uh, they had this thing called Royal Ambassadors, and they had these little handbooks. It was kind of like a Christian version of the Boy Scouts. It was, mm. you know, but in that they had a, a section on counting in foreign languages and mm. And they had a section on counting to 10 in Japanese. <laughs> and so Ichi Ni would be written like Ichi might be like I-T-C-H-Y. Yeah, Ni yeah. would be K-N-E-E. -E. But I remember learning <laughs> to count to Japanese, you know, Ichi Ni, Sanshi. And, and I just thought it was the coolest thing. But that was that was the extent of my Japanese uh, fascination. No manga, no anime uh, yeah. that I knew of growing up. And what about your parents? Were your parents ever you you grew up in a in a Christian home? I'm assuming I did. Yes. Were yeah. they were they missionally uh, minded? Like, did they have a global focus, or just not in the realm of their interests at all? Uh yes, they were so missionally minded that they actually were missionaries. So, uh, oh, they, okay. <laughs> they had uh, they spent several years in Central America uh, before that was before I was born. So okay. I'm in uh, Mexico, Guatemala, British Honduras, different places. So even as a kid, even though they had come back and I, you know, I completely grew up in Alabama, uh, we would occasionally have, um, I remember the occasional uh, Mexican pastor who would come to visit passing mm. through and uh, hearing my 
parents uh, speaking Spanish. And so that was, I think as a small child, um, that was definitely, uh, it took me beyond the the boundaries or the borders of of Alabama, at least in my imagination. Mm, They never, uh, do you have siblings? I do. I have uh, four siblings, so there are five of us. Oh, wow. And And so your your parents never took the whole family on a excursion down south um not not after i was born i mean we uh but my uh my sister my oldest sister uh she was actually born on the border of texas and mexico um Mm. my brother he had been born in alabama but so they they spent my oldest two uh siblings they spent some time there in mexico with my parents but no after 1970 we never did one of those trips you know uh to go back and see where what when kind of thing but mm. um, i think the furthest we went was when i was 14 we went to the world's fair in new orleans but um mm. about the furthest uh west i went as a kid wow so yeah not not so far eh? <laughs> yeah it was it was far for me just put it that way but yeah <laughs> it was a long and, drive <laughs> and growing up did your parents try to integrate spanish into your learning like were you raised learning spanish at all no no uh definitely not i mean they um it wasn't it wasn't really taught i think it was taught at yeah definitely taught in my high school but um uh, mm-hmm. but i had heard that well you don't really learn a lot of spanish in the spanish class you might be able to sing a few songs when you finish so yeah uh, I didn't even take Spanish in high school, um, but uh, no, they they really were, I would say, good about not trying to force on us the things that they had done or thought that, you know, we should do to follow in their really? footsteps. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so no, they never uh, tried uh, to get us to learn Spanish. I, I imagine it's a different world today. I mean, you could find Spanish tutors all over the place and mm-hmm. online, and but yeah, back then, growing up in the seventies. At least where I was, at least where I grew up, it just wasn't necessarily a thing. You know, take a kid during their spare time and make them learn a language. Oh, they would rebel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, one thing that I've been fascinated about in like the past two years is bilingual parents. So, I always assumed that it would be super easy to teach a kid a second language. Like, I always had this image of kids just being sponges. And yeah. you could just throw words at them in another language as they grow up, and then they would just soak it up and be able to speak fluently. Mm-hmm. I, d- I don't know why I thought like that, but I did. But it, it has only been through talking with people, uh, mostly here in Japan, who uh, are bilingual and finding out that it's it's not so easy. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the metaphor of the sponge as you're describing it. If If the sponge is in a desert, and you're just you're sprinkling water. Uh, the sponge is not going to do a lot of good. But what you need to do is throw the sponge into the sea. Yeah. Uh, and then that sponge is going to soak it up. Um, so in that sense, kids are great. But yeah. if they're if they're in a desert, there's no more water around except for you know a little trinkle here and there. Uh, no, it doesn't. Usually doesn't take, uh, in my view, but or mm-hmm. my experience, but. Now that that really enriches the metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, sponges. That's they need to be in the in a big body of water, right? So, mm-hmm. so you you grow up in Alabama. You've got missionary parents. Um, did did their um, passion? I'm sure they had a passion for missions. Uh, did that did that 
in any way inspire you to uh come to japan like or like do missions yourself or were you like ah, i don't really want to have anything to do with that kind of lifestyle <clears throat> no I, it wasn't i don't think it was it was neither of those i um when i was in college when i uh first came to japan and mm -hmm. it wasn't on a missions trip but i also was not i wasn't running away like jonah uh Mm -hmm. So uh, it was neither, I would say. Um, I, you know, I was, yeah, I was Christian. I was part of a Christian fellowship in college. And so my faith was an important part of my life. And, mm -hmm. and as I would, you know, seek guidance and, and all, that definitely figured into everything. But it, it wasn't for the sake of, of missions and whatnot. But it was just more for, in a, in a sense, for academic, but also personal reasons, I think, that I first came to Japan. Mm. Uh, and you know, I would I would later or along the way I might I had a tendency I think to spiritualize to try to justify uh, why I would do that. Yeah. And, oh yes, this is God's will, and to, you know, put a, a cloak of spirituality over uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> pretty basic reasons of why I wanted to come because of, <laughs> because of friends and because of uh, just the opportunities available. Mm -hmm. Sounds all too familiar. Yeah. So where did you go to college? So I went to the University of Alabama mm -hmm. and uh, actually I opened up the New York Times this morning and my uh, college is in the news because our coach who's very famous, Nick Saban, has been tested positive for oh, no. uh, coronavirus, but uh, it's a land of football. Uh, but yeah. uh, no, I, uh, University of Alabama, they're in Tuscaloosa, about an hour and a half from where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And uh, which, which uh, year did you go to Japan during your college? So when I was, uh, so when I was in college, let's see, I entered in 80, uh, 87. And then um, probably around the, the next year, 88, some, sometime that year, I saw a poster about a student conference. It's called the Japan America Student Conference. It uh, has a lot of history. Uh, it had begun even before World War II. Oh, wow. And uh, so I applied for this conference at, uh, you know, it's a pretty competitive thing where they brought together 40 students from around the United States and 40 students from Japan, brought them together. Uh, wow. One year they would travel around Japan for a month. The next year they would travel around parts of the U.S. for a month. And so, so I was, I, yeah, I joined that and uh, participated well, in it two years in a row, but that was, was 1989. That 1989. Yeah. The... <laughs> student conference where where was that that wasn't put on by your school it was put on by no maybe it's in like the, a large association in america yeah well it's uh it's uh um uh, i mean i'd have to pull up some of the details and how it's you know the leadership and how it's run these days but basically uh, there's an organization uh in in the u.s and i i guess an organization in japan that uh, you know, initially it was just, I think, students, again, in the pre-war years who said, look, we have a lot of problems between our countries. We need to, mm -hmm. uh, young people need to get together. We need to talk through some of these. We need to sort of a grassroots diplomacy, uh, find ways to uh, understand each other, uh, to, you know, as, through friendship, through uh, mm -hmm. dialogue. And uh, of course, the way that who runs the, these organizations, uh, I, you know, I won't go into all that right now, but basically there, there was an office in Washington, D.C. They would, um, but the students, even there was an executive committee of students, usually 10 students in the U.S., and they would uh, come together. They would 
prepare the program. They put out the applications. The office helps with all the administrative work, but they go out, uh, notifications to universities all across the U.S. Uh, mm -hmm. People apply, the students. So the second year I was on the executive committee, so I had this experience, but we actually flew oh, okay. to Washington, D.C. We looked at the applications. We selected the next year of students and uh, uh, on the oh, American wow. side and on the Japanese side, there was a group doing the same thing. Mm. Uh, so it's it's student led, although yeah. they have administrative services and offices um, yeah. to handle. But it's a really incredible program. And uh, but yeah, that year nineteen eighty nine, we spent a month and one week in Tokyo, one week in Toyama, one week in hmm. uh, I think we went to Kyoto and then to Hiroshima after that. Wow! So a group of forty? No, well, it was a group of eighty because we had forty Americans and forty <laughs> Japanese. <laughs> wow. Okay, a group. So did you did you go to Japan first, or did they come to America first? Um, well, the so in '89, uh, that was the first time I ever came to Japan. Uh, mm -hmm. The the Amer the forty American students met up in Oregon, I think it was, and mm -hmm. uh, we had a few days of orientation. Then we all flew to Japan, and and so that year the entire conference, except for orientation, was in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, then the following year, I was on the executive committee the entire conference was in the U.S. Um, oh, I see, I see. So it wasn't kind of like an exchange in the same year. It was no. The, okay. Wow. It all, it a month in Japan with 80 students. How, how did they keep track of all you guys? Uh, I mean, this was, I don't know, you know how you'd imagine it, but, but for most of our days, well, let's see. Um, I was going to say we were often wearing, you know, suits and ties, the men. Uh, mm -hmm. We were meeting you know, business leaders, education leaders, government leaders, uh, and in our downtime or maybe in our, uh, you know, smaller group meeting times, we could be much more casual, but mm -hmm. it was, you know, I mean, we were college students. So yes, there was, there was play. Uh, we had a lot mm -hmm. of fun, but it was also a pretty serious conference. So, um, yeah, it wasn't so the I'm, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm imagining just like rowdy college kids, but now that I think about the way you've been describing the program and, kind of all the uh, extracurricular work that went into it. I'm sure it was a, a lot of um, exempt, like well put together students who were there for a purpose. Yeah, no, it was definitely, um, it was definitely something like that. I mean, it, it was very, very um, intentional in terms of, I mean, we, we had, we, we were divided into, into eight different groups. Um, mm -hmm. And we had our own themes that we would study and we would go on small you know, excursions together. And we would do have various symposia as a large uh, uh, conference as well. But uh, no, it, it was, I, it's just hard to never experience anything quite like it. You know, a youth camp would not explain what it's like. Uh, yeah. Yet, you know, it wasn't, uh, we were still college students. So mm -hmm. lots of fun, but, but amazingly, serious as well in terms of just rich rich conversation interaction yeah i think sure. we felt we all felt very important <laughs> so maybe. especially wearing the suits and ties <laughs> yeah so do, do you remember the feelings you had when you were in oregon at orientation like how excited you were to get on that plane or were, were you like more scared mm, yeah I, I can't say that i remember that as much it, as it was a long time ago <laughs> yeah no even the i think my memories of coming to japan uh the sort of the anticipation 
were stronger uh, from the, the following years when I, I spent a year studying at a Japanese university, uh, Chiba mm -hmm. University. But, and then I was going at it pretty much all alone. But uh, that one, I remember the, the, in terms of the anticipation before the trip, I think that's a little stronger in my memory. Yeah, but you probably didn't really know what to expect, I guess. I mean, growing yeah. up in Alabama, <laughs> you were like, what was, what was that? Where, was your mind blown in Tokyo the first time you were there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's, uh, I think, as a kid, I mean, I'd gone, it's about four hours from my hometown to Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have like the peach tree uh, building. They have, I, I don't even know how many floors they are, but to me, they were high rises. They were, yeah. <laughs> they were massive. And uh, so, but yeah, going to Tokyo, just the, the neon lights, the colors, the, I remember walking that first uh, summer, you know, going to places like, you know, Harajuku and, mm -hmm. and just seeing a sea of heads of people walking or being on the train. Yeah. Um, so that, I think the, it was, it was not, it was certainly Japan, but it was city life. It was uh, yeah. being in a, I think that was, I wouldn't say overwhelming, but just made such a massive impression on me. Well, that actually, and so for example, that first uh, year, well, that during that conference, we when we left Tokyo, we took a, a bus ride, well, several buses, and we went up into the Japan Alps. Uh, mm -hmm. We went up to, uh, we went over uh, the Japan Alps down to Toyama in the course of a couple of days. Mm -hmm. But just within several hours going from the Kanto Plain, more or less flat areas, up into the mountains, driving on roads with these deep ravines on one side, seeing the change in terrain within the space of a few hours so dramatically. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the images that sticks in my mind the most. Uh, you know, you can drive in the U.S. and mm -hmm. various parts for hours and hours and hours, and you have basically the same uh, terrain, the same sort of yeah. landscape. But, um, but so it was the city plus uh, just uh, how much of variety you could see within mm -hmm. such a small space. And I'm sure... Well, I, I don't really know the topography of Alabama, but I imagine it's pretty flat. Pretty flat. Once you start getting up north, uh, you're getting into the foothills of the uh, Appalachians. And so, uh, and that, that's not exactly the world's highest mountain chain, but, uh, yeah. but, but uh, so it does get a little hilly and they're, they're what we would call mountains there. But well, uh, yeah, so I guess your first couple of weeks in Japan were pretty mind boggling. Oh, did yeah. you did you fall in love with Japan like right away or, or I I think in certain ways I did. I mean, it uh yeah, I mean, you know, I remember going back and just just uh that that first year but also the second year just being in Japan just so many things that were were different and I remember going back home and and telling, you know, family and friends like, oh, I saw that oh, in Japan, it's, it's this way. In Japan, it's that way. And, mm -hmm. and so many things are amazing. But I think people eventually got sick of hearing. Uh, it's like, you know, one, one person told me, well, if you like, you know, look, I'm just tired of hearing how much better Japan is than, than here. And yeah. I don't think it was I was trying to say Japan is better. I think I was just in my own awkward way. I was just trying to share the experience, but it, it didn't communicate. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh that that happens so much to um i don't i don't know uh how small well it sounds like you grew up in a small town but i also did as well and i have 
my sister and myself and uh, I have a couple of high school friends who had abroad experiences uh, like global experiences and yeah when you do come back it's it's really prominent in your mind and it, you you share it a lot with people and you want people to be excited about your experience because it was so life-changing for yourself mm-hmm. and but but yeah I've had so <laughs> many people similarly be like well like they they just can't relate to you yeah. so then hearing about it all the time I think really annoys people yeah no I think you know if if you were if I had been a great, great storyteller and I was really thinking about my audience as I'm telling these stories, I might have been able to stir up some interest. But yeah, uh, I, I think usually, uh, I, I don't know, I guess it, it often comes across as, um, as uh, oh, that place is so much better. And, you know, but, you know, obviously people cannot, if they haven't been there to a place, it's hard to relate. It's hard to imagine uh, what mm-hmm. it's like. And, it's kind of like listening to someone's dream. I mean, you you wake up, and at least my experience when I try to tell people about dreams, my dreams, mm-hmm. it's so interesting to me. But but you know, people are just not that interested in listening to your to your yeah, dreams. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Usually, they just don't make a lot of sense. Yeah. So so, the, so that first year you're in Japan, it sounds like you got uh, a good amount of coverage over uh, different areas in Japan, and then the next year the second conference japanese students come to the u.s were you involved with that uh like yeah. did you travel around with the group yeah i did uh that second year that summer it was we held the conference and uh it was more i think in some years they go really across the u.s but that year we went we were in san francisco uh, that bay area then we went up to seattle and then right. we spent the last um uh, or maybe I'm getting the order wrong, but we uh, spent some time in Anchorage, Alaska. So that was a, a draw. Oh, wow. Was, yeah, I think it was the first time the conference ever went to Alaska, but. Um, all West Coast. Yeah, it was all West Coast. Um, but no, and then that fall, it was that fall that I, I came to Japan and, and went to uh, Chiba University, and that was for a full year, 365 days. Um, but so the conference, a lot of moving around, just broad experience in all kinds of areas, whereas, you know, living as a student, definitely settle in uh, into one place, get mm-hmm. to know the place. So, it was, you know, very different experiences, but both of those in college, I think, were extremely formative for me. Yeah. And was your time at Chiba University, um, did you transfer to Chiba University or did you do like one year of study abroad and it, it accounted towards your undergrad? Yeah, no, I did not transfer. Uh, the University of Alabama and Chiba University had sort of a sister relationship of sorts. And then um, Japan's Ministry of Education, at least at the time, and I think still to some degree, but they had a really good scholarship program for uh, to bring people to Japan for short-term, uh, well, about a year uh, as undergrads. <clears throat> so I, I took, uh, yeah, it was just a year, basically two semesters of study, plus the breaks that I was able to be there. And so I was able to transfer those credits back to Alabama um, and then finished up there. Mm. But um, With yeah. a great program like that mixed in with your, uh, I'm assuming, awesome experience with uh, like being in Japan and with Japanese students in America, did you jump at the opportunity to study oh, abroad? Man. 
Oh yes, I I mean I jumped jumped so high. It <laughs> jumped so high. It was it uh the conference was one thing that I actually had to raise the money to participate. Uh it probably was a couple of thousand dollars uh yeah. you know for airfare, for the trip. Uh and you know, I I needed to raise all of that. So I had to I visited local uh, like Lions Clubs, Kiwanis Clubs. So these are basically civic organizations uh, where I'm from. And I would talk to groups mostly of almost entirely of men, I guess. And, uh, you know, tell them, you know, tell them some, give some talk about Japan and basically ask for money. But uh, uh, so I, I raised money to go on the conference those two years. But for Chiba, it was all paid for by the Japanese government, you know, including airfare, everything. Actually, wow. I had some, I had a little bit of money left over after it ended. I mean, it was a good program. Oh, wow. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> so that part, I think the main issue was getting in. And the jump I made there was I had, you needed about two years of Japanese study, um, two years of classes uh, going in. That was the expectation. Yeah. And I was only going to have time to get one year done. So mm -hmm. in the fall of 88, no, let's see, the fall of 89, I took Japanese 101 and I you know worked really hard and then the spring of of that next I guess 90 I took Japanese 102 and Japanese 202 at the same time. Oh, uh and so uh just to sort of prove to the people on the committees making the decision that okay I'm you know I'm serious I'm ready. Yeah. And uh so yeah made it. So it was uh that was a that was really the big year for my uh, Japanese language um, mm -hmm. explosion so um yeah without oh, that i don't know where where i would be today but that year in college just unencumbered fairly free in terms of time and and yeah. uh i think it was yeah that was a huge year for me did you uh did you have a native level speaker at university of alabama we did yes we had uh really uh excellent japanese professors we uh, still do and uh recently one of the professors brought a group of students just this past year and i met them up at the uh national museum of history over oh in that's Sacramento. very cool um but uh, i think it's been 20 plus years since i'd seen him but <clears throat> two or three japanese uh professors at the time and one was a full uh professor and at the time one i think had been an assistant uh, of sorts but now he's become the the main japanese professor oh wow so the professor you had all those years ago you met up last year here yes yes wow so my that is awesome uh, my japanese i went back and after my year in chiba i took japanese 301 or no 302 i think because i only had one more semester and um uh, sensei he uh he yeah he was my professor that year and uh he's the one who brought the students this past year met up with him so that was great good reunion that's, that's encouraging to hear because a lot of college friends that i've heard about who have taken japanese courses i guess in in british columbia my home province it sounds like we don't have the greatest like japanese education systems where a lot of non-native uh, speakers will be teaching the classes and uh, often students don't get the best of education yeah. so that that that's encouraging to hear uh what sounds like a very hopeful success story. Yeah, I, it's, um, I mean, the teachers are extremely important and that's definitely, uh, I won't take away from that. I won't, you know, 
go against that. But I think also, you know, going back to the sponge, I mean, if you are in a desert and, and, and the source of the water, I mean, that's important, whether in this case, a native Japanese or not non-native could make a difference. But I think the most important thing is to find other sponges that are looking for water. And, you know, nowadays you can do that online. You can find, uh, you know, you've got other sources, YouTube, whatnot. But I guess my point is that um, the colleges, when you're, when you're back, when I was back in the States, I mean, there's just a limit to what you can do in a language class, right? Yeah, for sure. So I think finding ways to keep your motivation up uh, for students in those circumstances, in those situations is the most important thing. Um, yeah, a bad teacher could ruin it, but, but a, a good to excellent teacher is just going to um, be there guide along the way but so much is up to the student i guess yeah yeah and your your time at chiba university was were all your classes conducted in japanese or in english pretty much in japanese the first half of the year uh these were all classes with international students and Mm. they were culture classes language classes um a few one or two of those may have been in english uh Mm -hmm. but uh but then the second half of the year uh, for some crazy reason, I, I took classes all with Japanese students. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there was no test. I had not taken the JLPT, had not proven any sort of proficiency. So yeah. I was pretty clueless. And it was, yeah, definitely like, you know, sink or swim. And I think I sunk most of the time. But oh, man. Uh, but just sitting in classes on education, geography, law. Um, and no, I mean, I'm to basically had a dictionary the whole time just just looking up words trying to make some kind of sense out of it but uh yeah so that was yeah that was pretty crazy and i also joined a basketball club that year so so i had uh, you know other opportunities to hang out with japanese students so um Hmm. but i traveled a lot and um i I did a homestay i I moved out of the international student dorm lived with a japanese family and for the rest of the school year well, that was so the first five months I lived in a international student dorm. Mm-hmm. And um, and then, you know, the problem at a lot of universities in Japan is they segregate the students, or at least they used to. Mm-hmm. And uh, so international students go in one dorm. And if the Japanese students live in a dorm, it's mostly you know, like all Japanese students. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't really want to be in that sort of mm-hmm. segregated environment. So I, I wound up, I found a family that, um, I lived with them. I <clears throat> taught them English once a week. I spoke only English with their three-year-old child. And then other than that, it was Japanese. So, uh, so wow. that was good. Do you, are you still in contact with that family today? I'm not in contact with them uh, these days. I think the, yeah, I'm ashamed. I've, I think about them from time to time, but I was just thinking recently that I need to reestablish contact. But no, I have not. I'm ashamed to say. Well, yeah, I think things get pretty busy, but were were they, uh, I mean, when I, the first time I came to Japan, I stayed three months in uh, Shiga Prefecture and I had a really great homestay experience, but I, I've also heard horror stories of homestay <laughs> experiences. So yeah, yeah. I, <clears throat> no, I had a, I had a great family. They were, they were terrific. Uh, they were only about probably 10, 12 years older than me. So they were oh, wow. pretty young. Um, but I, still, I remember, I mean, it was still, I would do things and get in trouble. Like I, one time I'd go in the bathtub, you know, in Japan, you, you, uh, 
you fill up the bathtub and then at least the one that we had fill it up with water and then there's a heater that it runs the water through this circulation system to, yeah. to heat it up and i had while i was filling up the tub the uh, chain that goes to the stopper had gotten mm -hmm. underneath the rubber stopper oh, uh, no, and no. so so it wasn't filling up and it was all leaking out and this <laughs> the heater was on to heat it up and and so when water is not going through it it could burn up and could damage yeah. it but uh so that's the one time i remember my host mother getting furious with me and just uh, <laughs> uh, i felt terrible but uh but uh, you know it was it was well deserved fury uh because i almost burned their house down i guess but, yeah but uh, no other other than that it was a great <laughs> but i do know a few pretty you know horror stories of homestays yeah yeah the worst stories i know are of japanese students going to Australia, but <laughs> oh, we won't boy. we won't go there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Every exchange student has that heart sinking moment where they really mess up. I, in my experience, I got I got lost on the transit system and I made my host mom almost die of a heart attack. <laughs> oh well. Oh. <laughs> no, that's can I let me just tell you one. It's I have to let's see how to tell the story, but uh, I was with a group of students. This is in graduate school mm -hmm. and it came for uh, the summer, but during the orientation week, we were in Kamakura and they had us do host homestays, uh, two day, three day homestays. Yeah. And uh, there's this one guy, I think his name was Gary. He, uh, when we all came back, he said, Oh guys, I had the worst thing that happened. And he had gone in when he arrived at their home, he needed to use the bathroom. And so they, they showed him the bathroom and he thought, hmm, this is interesting. The Japanese homes have urinals. So he used the bathroom in what he thought was a urinal. But because it was a stainless steel little bowl. And oh, as, no. as he was in the middle of his business, he saw a bar of soap. And he's like, why do they have soap on their urinal? And he's like, oh, my gosh, this is their sink. <laughs> it, it, it dawned on him. So he was standing there um, doing number one in their sink. Uh, oh my gosh within minutes of coming into this family's home uh <laughs> desecrating their <laughs> so he uh he said that he washed out the sink he flushed the toilet and he didn't say anything uh well, i think that's the only way to go about it <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's yeah that uh, oh man that's pretty funny <clears throat> so you do a year in Chiba University, and then you're back in Alabama. Are you dying to get back in Japan when you are when you return to Alabama? Uh, I was. I had uh, so I had only one semester left at college in Alabama, and I, I should say in the meantime, I had uh, I had gotten engaged, and uh, so my uh, wife, uh, she's Japanese, but mm -hmm. we we had met in Alabama. So she was studying at the University of Alabama, and I left her there. I went to Chiba, so I was studying in Japan. <laughs> um, and then uh, that year before we before I graduated, so she finished a year ahead of me. She mm -hmm. came to Japan, went to the Nagoya area, started working. So we had gotten engaged, and um, so yes, I wanted to. We were going to get married that year after I graduated, summer after I graduated. So, so that was another reason I was dying to get back to Japan. Yes, no doubt. Uh, yeah. Uh, where did you guys have your wedding in in Japan or? Yeah. So we uh, so uh, we had uh, we lived in 
a city called Owari Asahi, which is basically East Nagoya. Mm-hmm. And um, our, we had a church. We went to a church in Nagakute. Nagakute is famous among Japanese for one of the battle uh, battle sites of, I think, Oda Nobunaga, these, you know, sort of uh, beginning as Japan is moving into the Edo period. But anyway, um, we, we got married there. There's actually about a, about a kilometer or so from our church, there was a park, and the, the park is called Chino Ike Koen. So it's a mm-hmm. pond of blood park, but uh, there was a <laughs> battle scene there. <laughs> And my wife taught at a school, uh, and the kids, you know, they would go out to play and go out to play in, in the pool of blood, in the in the <laughs> pond of blood park. And I, oh boy, just imagine all these kids, you know, can we go play at the pond of blood? <laughs> yeah. Oh man. But no, that's that's uh, definitely. Uh, so yeah, East Nagoya, it was famous for I think really fancy weddings. Maybe Nagoya still is. I'm not sure, but. We had a non-fancy wedding in a small church, but uh, but yeah, the main thing was getting friends and family. My folks came over to Japan, and oh wow, uh, yeah, so we got married and and uh, have lived. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what prefecture is your wife from? She's from originally from Gunma. Um, okay, yeah, but her family moved to Niigata <clears throat> when she was in college. So so in terms of what I know, I would always go with her to Niigata to, Niigata, to mm-hmm. visit her family but but no she grew up in Guma so yeah have you ever been up to Niigata or I haven't that? no yeah definitely far- that's, yeah good uh I just the farthest I've been is Tohoku mm-hmm. um but I I haven't been to Niigata yet no yeah Niigata I mean even in college I went a few times to visit her folks but uh basically you know, you can be going up from Tokyo an hour, hour and a half. Uh, I went by local train, actually a few hours. But mm-hmm. you go through this massively long tunnel. Mm-hmm. And if the season's right, there could be just no snow on one side. You go through the tunnel, and then you're in what they call snow country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was another thing that was always fascinating to me. But Yeah, I would. Yeah. I, I plan to go camping there next summer. Yeah. I would love to go. Yeah, definitely. It's a beautiful place. But so you guys are together, married in Japan, uh, and then when uh, when did you go to graduate school? Did you stay in Japan for a bit and then go to graduate school, or? Yeah, so so we got married in let's see, that would be ninety two, and then uh, worked for three years in Nagoya. Uh, mm-hmm. After that, after that, I went to a seminary, uh, which you should be familiar with. That's at. Uh, Tokyo Christian University. They uh, at the time it was a seminary called Tokyo Christian Theological Seminary, mm-hmm. um, but it was separate from the university. Now it's it is the graduate school of TCU. Oh, okay. So I did three years at seminary. Uh, we lived there in the family dorm. Had just our oldest daughter had just been born uh, when we uh, a month before we went to seminary. And then oh, okay. Our second daughter was born our last year of seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, after that went to the states for another what was another 8 years of study uh wow. masters yeah masters program and then a doctoral program so uh and then after 8 years there came back to Japan and have been here since wow so i i had assumed that you had been in Japan 
permanently since you had come to TCU, but you had an eight-year gap of being back in America. Yeah, yeah, no, that eight years, that was also um, definitely pretty significant, I think, for my family in many ways. we. Yeah, uh, I can't imagine how that had an effect on your children. Yeah, so my older two daughters, they were both born, you know, here in Japan, mm-hmm. uh, but in, we lived in Massachusetts, so my youngest was born in Boston, and uh, but for all three of them, their earliest memories are basically growing up in, you know, Massachusetts there, and mm-hmm. And uh, so you're, you know, going back to that sort of bilingual children idea, I think definitely having them live in both countries um, was pretty significant for their, uh, for the, at least for their language and sort of cross-cultural development. But, um, but no, that was eight years. So an eight year gap in my time in Japan, which during which time I think my, uh, my Japanese sort of probably deteriorated a little bit. So yeah. That was that was the one hard part, uh, making sure that I could come back to Japan and actually be able to speak and teach in Japanese was was always the concern, I guess. But yeah, I I would imagine <laughs> while you're doing like a doctoral program, like a lot of your energy is focused into that. So I imagine keeping up with Japanese study wouldn't be like high on the or it wouldn't be top on the priority list. Yeah, if I had, you know, if I had done a program in uh, East Asian studies or something, that would be different. But I was doing mm-hmm. uh, biblical studies, Old Testament studies. So, yeah. Uh, so definitely, I was not able to spend too much time on uh, Japanese from a, you know, more of an academic approach. But uh, you know, within the family. But of course, you're talking about daily conversation, and there's only so many kinds of conversations that you have in that context, just in terms of you know raising kids. But uh, mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was, again, we would, we took at least had, I think we had two times, two, two opportunities to come back to Japan, spend a couple months in the summer. Um, but, um, but yeah, somehow, somehow was able to, uh, I think if you're a kid and you know, eight years at a certain age could be devastating, you could lose everything. But Mm. uh, since I had learned as an adult, uh, it was just more of a matter of, maybe stagnating, you know, getting a little rusty, but somehow yeah. got back into it. But yeah. Have you been here pretty much? You, you came twice, right? Have you been here consistently? Let's see. The first time you came was, uh, I was 16. Okay. For th- and that was only for three months. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then I came back the next year. Um, also for, I guess four months in total in Japan. Mm. And then, so that was in 2015 to 2016. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't go to Japan for two years. And then I, I, I've pretty much been here since 2018. Okay. So I guess your main Japanese language study was when you came back in 2018. Yes. Yeah. That was like, other than that, my first time in Japan, um, my host brother was fluent in English, so uh-huh. I used him as as a crutch, and I have lots <laughs> of I have lots of regrets. Um, and then the second time I was in Japan, I was with uh, an I guess an American missions organization, so everyone on base was an English speaker, yeah, and okay. I I barely used Japanese during that time. No, it's extremely hard. I if 
there's a there's a point where I think as long as as long as uh, a person's Japanese is worse than the average Japanese person's English, then you're going to find that it's mostly English you're hearing because that's what people fall back onto. And yeah, and the only people that want to talk to that person, it seems, among the Jap, you know, among Japanese, let's say college students, are the students who want to practice their English. Yeah. So, so you're kind of stuck. And so I, you know, I had that experience too. And I, um, I think within about a month or two, I just, um, I wound up hiring two other Japanese students. You know, I mean, I didn't have tons of money, but I paid them uh, a few hundred yen an hour, which, you know, that they were, it was acceptable to them. But mm -hmm. so I basically, I felt like I was paying to have friends. I was, uh, <laughs> I mean, they weren't teachers of Japanese. I just wanted someone to talk to in Japanese to struggle uh, yeah. in Japanese. And so uh, I would have a couple of sessions with two different people a week each week. Did that for probably a couple of months. Um, but you know, if I had not done that, I don't think I would have had any Japanese students who would be brave enough to try to talk to me in Japanese or yeah. maybe try to you know bother with it. Um, yeah. But and the other the other thing was uh, among the international students, one of my one of my best friends was a guy from Finland. And he was also in Japan to study Japanese. So we're two, you know, two basically two white guys. Mm -hmm. People thought he was an American. I mean, he's from Finland, but uh, but we we said no, you know, we're here to study Japanese. So we both we only talked in Japanese to each other. Mm -hmm. uh, so we would be on the train or out in Tokyo speaking in really broken Japanese. I mean, his <laughs> his Japanese actually was much better than mine. So uh, you know, thank God for his patience. But uh, and sometimes I joke that I speak Japanese with a Finnish accent, but it, uh, <laughs> but you know, if you find someone like that, unless you do that, then it's really hard to get to the point where then your Japanese is better than the average Japanese person's English. But yeah. once I got to that point, then it was, I, I felt like it really began to take off. Yeah, it can feel burdensome to speak broken Japanese to fellow uh, native speaker speakers uh like speaking students yeah because it's like oh man we're really just crawling through this conversation and they're <laughs> they're trying to they're trying to catch you falling but it takes it takes a lot of patience so i think i think hiring somebody like you did just to sit there and watch you suffer <laughs> is probably the best way of doing yeah it. you know they wouldn't want to do that without some yeah definitely Money had there had to be something. To yeah, it. some sort of compensation. <laughs> yeah, I actually do that for. Um, I do that uh, with um, a Japanese student here in Japan, hmm. uh, but we we do it in English. So okay, he, pay, he he pays me, and but it's been a really fruitful relationship. I've really enjoyed. Mm. Um, I know. I know a lot of people do the exchange thing. You know, you do English for half the time, Japanese mm -hmm. for half the time. I never really tried that. I don't. Uh, I suppose it. You know, it's the most economical way. But I decided uh, at at the time, I was like, okay, I just I want it all in Japanese. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, but I guess it depends on time and time and money, right? Mm -hmm. So as a multicultural family living in America, did you? Uh, did you have to be really intentional with your uh, kids 
um, in teaching them like, okay, this is American culture and this is, uh, this is like your mom's culture. This is how things would happen in Japan. Um, were you guys intentional in teaching your kids that, or do you kind of just have to let kids discover those things on their own? Um, I would say maybe a couple of answers to that before we, before we came to back to the States, before we went back to the States, um, so my oldest daughter was three at the time. And so she was old enough to hear stories and have stories read to her. So about a half a year before we went back to the States, a lot of nights when I was putting her to bed, I would tell, tell her stories. Uh, and the, the headline was Kana goes to America. Uh, but you know, three-year-olds, I was, I would tell her like today's story, Kana goes to Walmart. Uh, Kana goes to the mall. Kana goes swimming. Uh, so, but it, it would just be, you know, I'd paint a picture of life in Alabama because that's where we were going next. And uh, so that I was pretty intentional about trying to prepare her for this strange new world that she was about to enter. Mm -hmm. uh, but then once we went to Massachusetts, we lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and and uh, it was extremely multicultural. So my, mm -hmm. so again, Kana, when she went to kindergarten, you know, her best friends were from different countries, different ethnic backgrounds. Uh, mm -hmm. so certainly some from there in Massachusetts, but, all, you know, different races. Uh, so there, to, even to say what is American culture, I mean, uh, in Massachusetts and Cambridge is very, very different than what American culture is in Alabama. So yeah, I think the biggest culture shocks, even more than going from Japan to, uh, to the States, was going from uh, Cambridge to Clanton, which is, you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts to Clanton, Alabama. So that culture gap was probably about as big as the culture gap in, you know, the uh, Japan and the U.S. I'm kind of joking, but it, it really did feel. No, I totally believe that. <clears throat> because you expect there to be so much similarities, but yet there's so many differences. Mm -hmm. And when your expectations are betrayed, then it just can create all kinds of confusion. But no, but our, our kids definitely, they, I think they adapted well. And, uh, mm -hmm. but in a place like Cambridge, um, Maybe there are certain things you need to be intentional about, but for the most part, I think living in that community, interacting with people from all over, uh, just in daily life, yeah, and, and also having conversations about the experiences, processing it together. Uh, so after your time back in, so you you go to Cambridge and then you're back in Alabama. When did you return back to Japan as a family? So we came back in 2006. Um, we so we had uh, spent the eight years there in in Massachusetts, but yeah, 2006 I finished my studies and came back, and that's when I started teaching uh, at Tokyo Christian University. Been so here ever since. Yeah, 14 14 years ago. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Was what, it? What, what year did I meet you? You came to TCU. Um, so we would have met in 2018. 2018, yeah. I believe, yeah. Yeah. No, it's been, it's been a, I mean, I've lived in, I live in a, I guess within Inzai City. It's uh, one of the older neighborhoods. I live on the north side along the old, you know, the, the, uh, the Narita line, uh, old part of the town. They mm -hmm. say it's a, part of Inzai where the old residents and the new residents live together and the new residents have only been here for about 50 years. <laughs> that gives you <laughs> the new residents are 
are pretty old in my in my book but uh yeah. <laughs> but now we live in a uh, in a fairly old neighborhood it was built in the showa period but it's kind of a sleepy part of town uh but in a so in that respect it feels like a, a quiet life mm-hmm. uh, but it's been good so I, in, during those eight years of study i imagine you you visited japan to maybe visit your wife's family mm-hmm. and uh, stuff like that did was it hard adjusting back to uh like living and settling down in japan back in 2006 um i don't remember it being hard uh it was it was nice to you know i'd been a, a graduate student i i had been fully funded for a number of those years and so uh fully funded in terms of my graduate program but mm-hmm. we still had to work a lot my wife was working uh, full-time i was working part-time uh, some of those years trying to you know to get by and uh so that i think it was probably a relief at being okay uh, settling down uh, having full-time job uh, being able to not worry so much about the cost of living's extremely expensive in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So, mm-hmm. um, so no, it wasn't really a hard thing. Uh, I think the hardest thing also was just, yeah, jumping into, um, teaching. I had a few classes in English, but I also had a few classes in Japanese. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I remember that first fall I was asked to, uh, to be the translator for, uh, a lecture. There was a, I think that year it was a, uh, a Kenyan professor who was coming to Japan. Uh, and so there were several, le- a series of lectures, but I was going to do one of those. And I-, I wouldn't say I was terrified, but I just, I thought, okay, this is going to be pretty terrible. Um, <laughs> and, and so I, I spent, we had, we have certain amount of research funds, but, uh, translation software was pretty new on the market. It was still developing, but mm-hmm. you couldn't go to Google translate or anything like that. But I spent a lot of money on some translation software, went into Akihabara to buy it, but but I put her lecture through it and it, you know, it was just a mess, yeah. uh, but it was so much better today. But, but I, I remember that kind of, again, not fear, but just not wanting to let people down and probably, you know, being, you know, stretching beyond my abilities at certain points. And uh, mm-hmm. so when I would have those kinds of roles fall on me, um, I think that was probably the, some of the biggest challenges I had at the time, but um mm-hmm. Other than that, I think, yeah, we were just glad to be settling down. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the the times where your abilities had been stretched, uh, whether it's in Chiba University trying to struggle your way through a conversation or translating a Kenyan um, speaker's message, it sounds like those are the times that, like, looking back has really put you in the place that you are today yeah i mean i think it's a combination of pretty much everything but definitely uh being stretched uh i think that's that's how muscles grow right i mean uh you need to stretch and maybe uh tear something every now and then yeah but uh heal from that and then move on and keep growing but definitely uh i think with that even with that lecture i mean the one i'm mentioning um it it was also a confidence building uh, opportunity. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. had to work really hard and made it somehow made it through it. And, and, uh, 
so I think just it's you know series of small things like that um sort of mm -hmm. the daily or weekly challenges the big things that are looming over you but you know yeah, probably just, the, yeah as somebody who is following in similar footsteps to yourself it's uh i i feel encouraged uh hearing these moments of struggle because mm -hmm. it's easy for me to be in this time struggling without uh sight of a of um a successful or just a, a, a yeah. bright future. So <laughs> I, yeah. I appreciate all the things that you've shared today. No, no. I mean, I would say, you know, along those lines, definitely keep looking to the future, but and envisioning a different, you know, a, a different, I would often look ahead to see, okay, I would imagine myself speaking fluent Japanese one day, but, but I think uh, the cliche of there's joy in the journey. Um, so it seems to me that you're enjoying the journey and uh but the more that you enjoy the journey with the people that you're with and and if you're surrounded by people that do uh help you to stretch then you can yeah you're gonna get there you're gonna you're gonna keep growing so mm -hmm. so uh yeah keep uh, i think that's if you're, i mean even what you're doing now uh drawing people together to sort of talk about how we're doing life you know how we're mm -hmm. how we're doing what we're doing i mean that's a i want to applaud you on that i really uh, look forward to see how this develops and also to see where you go but yeah thank you well dr short it's been um a great time chatting with you um yeah i i, I hope that maybe you'd be able to come again in the future and we could maybe delve deeper into the culture and uh, kind of the spirit of Japan. But for now, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tyler. I really enjoyed it. Hey, guys. I want to give a huge shout-out to Dr. Short for being on my last episode of It's a Guy Thing podcast. Guys, this is the end of season one. We're five episodes deep. This is kind of like a thing I just wanted to try out. Um, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is something that I want to pursue and continue doing. So I hope to see you guys in 2021. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And hope to see you guys in the future. Bye.